You'll have to uh, forgive me today if I find myself coughing my way through this message. A, um, a plague has visited my household. Oh, we've all been struck with illness. We, uh, well, we are the proud parents of a wonderful little two-year-old. Um, but there's something that happens when they start to go to nursery. They turn from being a bundle of joy to being a bag of germs. And uh, every time she comes back from nursery, we never know if we're going to get a piece of artwork or a new infectious disease. And this week's been, uh, been, been the latter for us. So um, you'll have to bear with me. And I think I can see the people in the front row looking a bit more worried, questioning their life choices, whether they should have bought an umbrella today. But... Um, you can help me today. You can help me preach this message if you want to. We can join together. We can be excited to dig into God's word. We believe it's living and active. We believe that it has everything we need for life and godliness. And when we engage with it and we take action as a result of it, we can see not only our lives changed, but the lives of other people around us changed. And so we're continuing our series today from the book of James. And we kicked off last week. I hope you enjoyed Last week, the first installment of our series, where we were looking at the perspective we choose on the problems that we face, and whether we'll allow those problems to be pitfalls in our lives, or we'll choose to use them as platforms to see what God wants to do in our lives as a result, and what we can learn to become more like Him. Because though often in life, it's our outlook that determines our outcomes, right? What you see is what you get. And we spent some time looking at the lessons from the first chapter of this letter from James. And today we're going to continue and we're going to look at chapter 2 from this book as we work our way through what James has to say. Now, James really does have some stuff to say. I don't know if you've taken the time to read James, but I would encourage you to do so over the course of this series. It's, it's quite a short book, so if for no other reason, just, just to go through it. There's only five chapters, and he crams so much into so few pages. James speaks about temptation, about trials. He speaks to equality and arrogance, submission to God. He speaks how we're supposed to handle wealth, and he speaks of the life of faith. And all of this in my Bible fits in just four pages. This is my kind of book, right? It's short. It's to the point. It's not that 45-minute sermon that somehow turned its way into a 250-page book. You know, I can sense there's some awkwardness in the room. You know, you read chapter 2, chapter 3, and you're like, oh, it's a bit like chapter 2. And chapter 4 feels a bit like chapter 2. And chapter 8 feels a bit like chapter 2. But I don't know how James would handle today as a Christian author. Maybe he wouldn't find himself flourishing in the publishing world. Because he is direct, and he is to the point. And as I've been studying, I've grown quite fond of him because I imagine James, when I think of him as someone who, a bit like me, doesn't really always appreciate the small talk. Now, I'm nervous about what I say here because you might come and speak to me later and sort of worry about how I'm appreciating the conversation. But no, I, I, I can do small talk. But particularly at work, you might find yourself in these situations, you know, where you're busy and you're at your desk and someone comes over and they clearly want something, but... It takes them a long time to get around to it, doesn't it? They say, like, so you come Monday morning, you're like knee deep in emails, and uh, someone comes up, hey, Sai. Hey. Just carry on my work. How was your weekend? It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, weekend was great, thanks. Yeah, how was your weekend? Yeah, wonderful. And then they're like, do anything good? 
And then I just feel like, I feel sometimes I have to stop myself because my natural reaction is just to ask them, what do you want? <laughs> Say what you mean and then go. But no, I, I, that's, that's me when I'm stuck in the zone, when I'm stuck in work. And, and I see this kind of same style of James because if I contrast the way James opens his letter with the way we see some of the other letters in the New Testament, you can see that he perhaps he's not one for small talk either. So the author Paul, who has written much of the New Testament, sent many letters to many churches, he always opens his letters the same way. He's, he's obviously been to the management school. He knows that if you're going to provide constructive feedback, you need to start by providing a great deal of compliments. So he butters them up. He's like, he always starts the same way. He thanks God for them. and he, he talks about all the great things they're doing and all the stuff he's heard of that's really good before he gets into the meat of the matter and all the things he wants them to change. And if you don't believe me, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time just, just examining this. So the book of First Thessalonians, we, we read Paul writes this. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith... Well, remember that phrase, your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. He, he keeps going. He doesn't just, that's not it. He keeps going before he really gets into all the things that he has in terms of teaching for the Thessalonian church. The same is true in Colossians. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Philippians, I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I could read every one of Paul's letters. I won't. See, some of you are thinking, this is going to be a long preach. But Romans is the same. And then I look at the way James starts his letter. James a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. Consider it pure joy when you face suffering. This guy doesn't do warm-ups. He's not wasting time. He is straight in there. He hasn't got time for this. And I can imagine these two guys, if they were here today, and Paul were to call James and get on the phone, and he'd be like, hey, James, how's the church going? You know... Got anything good? Did you see the game on Sunday? And James would just be like, what do you want? But there's an urgency about the way James teaches. And when you read this short letter that he writes, you can see that he doesn't pull any punches. He gets straight into what he wants to say, and he's quite direct with it. You could even go as far to say he's a bit blunt. But sometimes blunt isn't bad. It isn't. Sometimes in life, we need someone to tell us how it is, don't we? And what I found to be true is that when the facts are the hardest to face, it's actually the people that love you most who are the ones that have the courage to bring the challenge that you need to hear. And so you might read this and think, oh, James, seriously, take a chill. But there's a sense of urgency about what he wants us to learn. And he doesn't want to water it down. He wants to get straight into it. 
And so as we look at the theme for today's message, we'll see that like everything else James speaks about, he does so both directly and with a challenge. And I hope you're up for the challenge this morning. I hope you can receive the challenge this morning. I hope we, together, you help me explore this chapter and see how we can apply this challenge to our lives. And he's speaking in chapter two, we're gonna pick up in verse 18, where we learn what James has to say about faith. He says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Well, great, even the demons believe that. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. His faith and his actions were working together. Faith cannot be separated from action. The two go hand in hand. Now, with all that said, we know that it's not the action that has the power to save us. In fact, much of Paul's writing in all those letters that start in such a a lovely warm-up fashion make this very clear. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he writes this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. He's talking about the purpose of faith, that through this faith we can have access into the grace into which we now stand. And he says that this is not from yourselves. We can't do anything to earn it. That it is a gift from God. You're given a gift. You don't work for a gift. But even Paul wrote about the importance of action. In almost the same breath, just two verses later, we have this very famous passage, Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'm grateful that God has prepared good works for me to do. I don't know how faith-filled you are in this place today, but my prayer is that after this, you will go away more faith-filled than when you came in to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you. Because he has. He has a plan for you. Not a plan for you as a collective, but a plan for you as an individual. And there are good works for you. He's prepared in advance. But what James is warning about here is about a benign belief. You know, the superficial statement where you just say that you believe something. And he's talking about a so-called faith. And I say a so-called faith because faith must always be more than a belief. He says as much in verse 19. He says, so you believe in one God. Well, that's wonderful. Even demons believe that. I like to think that each and every one of us here have more faith than the demons. Because I don't just believe that there's a God in heaven. I don't just believe that he sent his son to die for me. I don't just believe that I can be restored into a relationship with him because of the work of his son. I allow that belief to transform my life. And we need to do the same because we believe that when we accept Jesus, we are able to have access to the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes into our lives, we cannot help but be transformed because there's fruit of the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, the fruit will follow. And we become transformed lives that in turn transform other lives. 
But the danger when we read a passage like James, who's so direct, is that we can maybe be inspired, maybe be even convicted. But the wrong response would be for us to just work harder, to try and do just a few more good deeds, to focus on doing the right things, you know, the things that we all know we should do, really. Or maybe doing what we see other people do. But when we focus on the action and ignore the faith, we're just focusing on the what without the why. And we absolutely must have a why behind everything that we do. As I was studying for this and reading this passage, I was reminded of a, of a TV show. It's not on anymore, but you may remember it. Um, it was called Faking It. Anyone remember Faking It? If you don't remember it, I'll explain the premise of the show. In each show, they take a contestant, which is a, a member of the public, and that contestant spends a pro uh, an intense period, four weeks, with an expert in a given field. Now, it may be a whole number of different things, but they spend four weeks with this expert. And their goal in this four weeks is to watch them so closely and to learn every detail so that they can then go and imitate this expert and take part in a competition with people who do actually have experience in this area, in like an actual competition. And then the panel of judges in this competition are informed that one person in the competition is faking it. And it's their job to try and determine who's faking it. And it's the contestant's job to try and fool the judges. And these are no like simple things. They're not always transferable skills that they have. Some of the episodes were a sheep shearer taking part in a hairdressing competition. I remember the episode where the ballet dancer was in a wrestling match. That was a good one. And there was so many other ones. There was a punk rocker being an orchestra conductor. There was a vicar pretending to be a car dealer. You may feel he had an unfair advantage. Um, one of them was great. Which, there was a lawyer who tried to be a grime artist. And, and you see, they, these are not things that necessarily come naturally to them but they just imitated. They were faking it. Their ultimate goal was to fool the judges. The thing is that even the ones that were able to do that, who were successful, had learned just enough to get by. So they may have learned just a single dance or, or maybe one hairstyle or one song. They knew a single routine that they needed to get through the competition. So they learned to go through the motions but they never appreciated the motivation behind what they were doing. So everything looked okay from the outside, but often when it would fall apart is when the judges were to try and dig a little bit deeper, if they were to try and ask a few questions, and they would discover that there's actually no real experience, there's no knowledge of why something works or theory behind what they're doing. Everything was just surface deep. They were faking it. And sometimes, I believe when we observe people and we get inspired by the way we see other people live when it comes to faith, we can fall into the trap of doing the same. We can start faithing it. And we can see others around us and we can see the faith operate in their lives and the fruit of that faith. And instead of asking the question about what's driving that and what's fueling that, we can just start to imitate what we see on the outside. We focus on what's going on out here rather than what's going on 
in here. And when we do that, we've got to ask ourselves, who are we trying to fool? Are we trying to fool ourselves? Are we trying to fool the people around us? Maybe it's not a conscious decision, but there's one person who will never be fooled because we cannot fool God. The Bible teaches us in 1 Samuel 16 that people look on the outward appearance, and we know that to be true, but it says that the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside, God sees what's on the inside. And it says that without faith, it is impossible to, pre to please God. And herein lies the danger, because even if we manage to pull it off, and even if the things we're doing are the right things, so if I find someone who is operating out of faith and I stand next to them and I just do all the things that they're doing, but I do it without the faith, then I pass up the opportunity to please God. I'm going through the motions without the motivation. Right action, wrong attitude. And it, it's not sustainable because unless what's going on out here is fueled by what's going on in here, we can start to feel like we're running on empty. We start striving. We start doing things out of our own strength because faith is like a fuel. And when you don't have fuel, it feels like you're running on empty. I don't know if you've ever felt like you're running on empty. I have. I just sometimes plow on. It's not been a deliberate conscious decision, but perhaps I've forgotten the why behind what I'm doing and I'll just focus all my energy in the what and not necessarily be conscious about the why. I do all the things, forget about the heart. And my challenge is that we can't possibly do that if we want to sustain our life of faith. So instead, we should focus on the source. We should inspect what's going on on the inside and grow in our faith. Now, when we look at James and we look at Paul, and we can see that Paul is primarily talking about the purpose of faith, and he's warning about an action without faith. And James is talking about the evidence of faith, and he's warning about a faith without action. Well, I think the best place to go if we want to learn about faith in action is the book of Hebrews. One of the most famous passages we can find on faith is in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is, in my Bible, got the heading, Faith in Action. It's story after story of inspiring people who, quote, by faith, dot, dot, dot. They acted on the promise of God. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David, Samuel, and more. They all acted in faith. But before all of these stories, the chapter opens with this statement in Hebrews 11, verse 1. And I want us to just focus on this verse today, which gives us a clear understanding of what faith is. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Confidence can sometimes be intimidating. I, I don't know about you, but I've met people before, they seem very self-confident. And particularly if it's an area in which I don't feel myself to be as confident, it can be a bit intimidating. And 
when we read Hebrews, we might think that we're reading about these people and they're, they're obviously very confident people. But I want to tell you, don't be fooled because these people's confidence was not in themselves. It wasn't in their own ability or their own strength. Their confidence was in their God and their creator. Their confidence was in the promise that they had received. They had the boldness to take God at his word for what he said he would do for them and step out in faith and see it happen. And we can read it and we can think, oh, it's okay for these people because they were special. But what made them special? It was only the special God that they served. And we can sometimes exclude ourselves from these great acts of faith because we feel that we're ordinary. Well, we are ordinary, but so are these people in the Bible. They were ordinary people with an extraordinary promise. So it wasn't the, their own abilities or, or who they were in themselves that made them extraordinary. They, they were ordinary people with an extraordinary promise. None of these people could do it alone. They were just willing to give God what they had in the natural and believe God for the supernatural. They stood on the promise that God had given them. And that's the unique thing about the promises of God. I was sharing a little bit, a team night about this, how when we make a promise, we can stand by it, but when God makes a promise, we can stand on it. And there's a big difference between standing by something and standing on something. And what I didn't say then is that the, one of the main differences about when you stand on something is that you are raised to a new level. If I were to stand on a platform now, I would be physically taller. And do you know what happens? The view's so much different from up here. And whilst I can see from a higher place in the natural, when I stand on the promises of God, I get a higher perspective. So when I'm in faith lifted up on top of the promises of God, I can see beyond what would normally crowd me out. I can see above what's directly in front of me and I can look towards what God has promised me. When we stand on the promises of God, we have a higher perspective, a vantage point from which we can see the advantage that comes from God's promises for our lives. Ordinary people standing on an extraordinary promise. But when we're up there and we're standing on that promise with faith, fear can call to us, come down. But I want to encourage you, when fear calls to you to come down, shout louder with faith. Faith is the antidote to fear. And so when fear says to you, you can't do it, shout with faith, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When fear says to you, there's not enough, Shout with faith that God will meet all my needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. When faith says I'll never break free of what's holding me back, you shout in faith that I am a new creation, created in Christ Jesus. And through the work and the power of his cross, I need never be the same again. Faith can shout louder than fear. What has he promised you? What has he promised you that you've been standing by, but now you need to stand on? Maybe you know that God's called you to do something specific, but fear is holding you back. Step out. Step out 
and step on to the promise of God. There is no platform more secure on which you can base your life and take your next step than the promise of God. It's confidence in what we hope for. And it's assurance in what we do not see. It takes trust to believe in what you cannot see. It doesn't take trust to believe in what you can see. That's why the most famous trust exercise is when two people stand and, and, and one faces away from the other and, and falls backwards without knowing if the person's going to catch them. They cannot see whether the person's, person's there. And because they cannot see it, there's an uncertainty. Until they're caught, they don't know. And that's why it's so difficult for us to put trust in what we cannot see. And then so in the natural, we find ourselves preferring to put trust in what we can see. Maybe we trust in our health. Maybe we trust in our bank balance or our job security or the friends around us. And it's easy to trust in these things because we can see them. But the danger is that these things are temporary. They might be here today and gone tomorrow. And by placing our trust in what is temporary, we leave ourselves vulnerable. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth encourages us to do something different. He said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I always find it quite a sobering thought to think that everything around us pretty much is, will one day fade away. That's the fear. But the faith tells me that when I trust in the eternal, when I trust in the everlasting, when I trust in the God who was the same yesterday, when I trust in the God who is the same today and the same tomorrow and the same forever, then I have an assurance. I have a guarantee because the word says that although the grass might wither and the flowers fade, the word of our God will stand forever. And in order for us to function with faith, I believe we need to keep an eternal perspective. And that's one of the points in your notes is allowing an eternal perspective to impact your everyday decisions. We said already that almost everything you see around you will one day fade. The job that you work so hard at, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the building around us, almost everything. Except the people. See, the impact that we have on others can outlast us. The Bible teaches that there is eternity placed inside the heart of every man and every woman. And when everything is gone, it's our investment in the souls of people that will echo into eternity. And sometimes we don't even get to see the full extent of the impact our faith has on people. You may have a conversation with someone, you might tell them about your God and you feel it's gone nowhere, but we just don't know what difference that has made and what impact that has had on their inside. 
and we will never know until we reach eternity how their lives or possibly their eternities have been changed as a consequence of an action of faith that we have taken to look beyond ourselves and invest in others. It might not look like the way we expect while we're here, but it doesn't mean that we haven't left a legacy. We need to keep an eternal perspective. It's extraordinary people with an extraordinary promise and allowing an eternal perspective to impact our daily decisions. Finally, I want to just look at one of the lessons from one of these stories of faith that we have recorded for us in the Hebrews. Because I think faith starts with trust and trust in God. And faith often requires obedience. When we read the story of Abraham in the Bible, he's one of these people who is commended in this hall of faith in Hebrews 11. We can see that God's blessing followed Abraham's obedience. When Abraham's faith was tested and he was asked to sacrifice his son and he was shown willing to give him to God, the very thing that God had given him and promised him for many years and it had taken him years to see the, the, the sort of completion of that promise, when he was willing to give that back to God, it was then and only then that God spoke and he stops Abraham with a knife in his hand and he says this in Genesis 22. Verse 15, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Wow. All nations on earth will be blessed. Because you have obeyed me. The blessing followed the obedience. And when I read this, something else struck me, that not only did the blessing follow the obedience, but the blessing actually came from and came through the very thing that Abraham was going to sacrifice. It says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. His offspring was what he was literally laying down on the altar. And then I, I realized, well, God can only use what we're prepared to give him. What has he given you? What skills has he blessed you with? What passions has he placed inside your heart? What resources do you have? Are you willing, when called, when prompted by God, to give them to him. He can only use what you put on the altar. And it's when we come and we sacrifice those things that he can take them and multiply them and bless not only us, but everyone around us. You see, the blessing that Abraham received wasn't even fulfilled really in his lifetime. It said, through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. His son Isaac was to go on to have a son named Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel, the patriarch of the holy nation. And then you've got Abraham all the way back here, making that step of obedience. The blessing extended beyond his borders, beyond his lifespan. It was later on, two generations' time, where the nation would be formed. And the whole world would be blessed through what he did. But it starts with yes. It starts with a step 
of obedience. My question today is, what do you need to say yes to? What have you been waiting to say yes to? Because sometimes when we face a big decision, it's easier to put it off. And it's not that we don't want to say yes, we're just not saying yes yet. And my final encouragement to you is this. Decide for today. Don't defer until tomorrow. Don't leave for tomorrow what God would have you deal with today. And we're going to close in a moment and we're going to sing a, a final song of worship as the team come back. But as we do that, I wanted to give some space today. Not tomorrow, not even after we've sung the song, but right now. For us not to defer, but to decide. I wanted to give space for the people who might be here who received a promise from God once. And then for whatever reason, maybe fear got in the way or fear started calling them backwards, they've put that promise on a shelf and it's on the back burner. And so we're going to sing in a moment. So I want to invite everyone in this place to stand if you're able because we're going to sing a song of worship as we close. Before we do, I just want you to reflect for a moment. Is there something in your life that you feel God has called you to do? Is there a promise in your life that you feel is from God for something specific? And do you know deep down that that's going to require you to take a step of faith? Some people, the, the promise might be very big and, and therefore very terrifying. It might require a leap of faith. For others, it, it might be just something very practical, but it, require, but it still requires a step of faith. And whether it's a giant leap or a small step, often it takes us to make a practical choice to see the fruit of the promise. And I don't know, maybe fear's been holding you back from making your move, but you can resolve today to say, no longer, today I say yes. And I wanna pray for you, if that's you in this place, if you feel stirred even as I'm saying this something's coming to mind and you, you just know that you've been putting it off what God's called you to do well I want to speak to that stirring I want to speak to that faith in you I want to call forth courage in your life to take that step and I want to pray that God will give you the confidence the courage and the peace to see it through for many people it'll be different things and I, I don't need you to tell me what it is I don't God knows but so that I can pray for you and so that I can include you in this prayer if you feel there's something that you need to say yes to and you've been putting it off and today you're saying yeah do you know what I'm going to take that step I'm going to do whatever it is I'm going to believe for that provision I'm going to step out on God's word and take him at his word and believe that he will do what he said he will do if that's you and I want to include you in this prayer will you just raise your hand and do something bold for me in this place thank you Look around. Look at the faith in this place. 
We sometimes think that God responds to giant faith. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says the faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. And you might feel that your faith is small. You might feel that you're ordinary. Well, I want to tell you, every one of these people was ordinary. They just had an extraordinary promise. Father God, I just thank you for these people who are reaching out with their hands, but also reaching out with their hearts to heaven. And I just pray, Lord, for this decision they've taken, this moment of resolve, before the year's fully finished getting started. We're still in January. For them to say yes. I don't know what it is, Lord, that they've been putting off and they're delaying, but today they're deciding to make the step they need to do to see that promise in their life. And Lord, I just pray as they go from this place, would you provide for their every need? Lord, if it's your will, you can pay the bill. I pray for provision. I pray for protection. I pray you make a way where there isn't a way. I pray for favor with other people. I pray for relationships that need to be stored, restored, Lord. And I pray that as they take this step of obedience, you would meet them with your blessing. And I pray, Lord, that not only they would be blessed, but people around them would be blessed. I thank you for this decision people are making. Lord, and we just praise you in advance for the advance of your kingdom as a result of the men and women of faith in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we sing this song, you may have been in this place and and you're hearing about faith and you know that you've never taken that first step of faith, let alone a giant leap or a small step, that first step, the first step to say, yeah, I trust you, God. I trust you, Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, to lay down your own agenda and to put your trust in your Savior. You say you can't do it your own way. You ask for forgiveness for trying to do it your own way and you accept Jesus as the Lord and leader of your life. And I want to tell you, he has a better plan for you than you have for you. He'll take better care than you could take for you and he will, your life could never be the same. I'm not saying life's easy, but it allows us to have a higher perspective when we stand on the promise of God, the promise of his salvation, access into that grace by faith. And so if you're here and maybe you've been coming for a little while, maybe you've been doing the church circuit for some time, or maybe this is your very first time in a church setting and you feel stirred to say, actually, yeah, today, today. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave till tomorrow or God would have you deal with today. And so if you feel stirred to do that, I want to pray for you as well. And what we do here at this church, many of you will know, is when we pray this prayer of faith, we pray it all together. Because as a collective, we can instill courage in one another. And we pray it with faith and boldness. And what we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to say some words and you can repeat them after me. And if you're believing this as a way of saying, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Just connect with your heart with these words. And you can become a Christian. Or maybe you made this decision a long, long time ago and you've subsequently just moved further and further away from the core value of what it meant to serve Jesus. Maybe you're still even doing all the works, but the faith has grown cold. You go through the motions, but you've lost the motivation. Well, today you can realign, you can say, do you know what, Jesus? I want to live more for you and not for man. I want to live more for you and not the opinion of others. 
I want to take what I do, not stop it, but I want to motivate it instead by faith again. You can pray as well. You can reconnect and reaffirm your faith in Jesus today. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray and afterwards just to support you on your journey. If you made that commitment today, either to come back or for the first time, we're going to actually do something very bold and just raise your hand. No one's going to be looking. Um, Everyone's going to have their head bowed, but just a member of our team will just place something in your hand to support you on your journey of faith. Let's bow our heads and pray. Repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I need you. Today I choose to put my faith in your promise. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving your life. I'm sorry for trying to go my own way to prove myself. Today I accept you as my Lord and leader of my life. Forgive me for my sin. I choose to accept your grace for my life. Thank you for accepting me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, just with every head bowed, every eye closed in the room, if you made that prayer, your prayer today, if you said today, yeah, today, that's me. You just put your hand up just so we can support you in this decision. Thank you. Don't delay. Decide. Just want to give a little longer. If you feel that's you, you feel your heart's been stirred, it's one of the best decisions you can ever make. Is there anybody else? Father God, I just thank you that when we put our trust in you, you're faithful and we believe in your promise for our lives. I pray that we would go here with a confidence and a peace like never before to put into practice the promise that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.